2: Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you've missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Right now, let's uh, talk to Sir Desmond Swain. He's a Tory MP, he's a former International Development Minister. And uh, Sir Desmond, you share a lot of, certainly my and other people's concerns about this rule of six. The new, it was brought in by Statutory Instrument uh, uh, overnight at midnight. Uh, I think 23 minutes we got to see the legislation before it actually came into force. Uh, sets up a different situation from England, England from Scotland and Wales, that where children are under 12 are exempt from that count of six. Um, what do you make of the decision to bring in that rule and, and why are you unhappy with it?
3: I'm principally unhappy because I I, I disagree with it. Uh, I don't like the intrusion into our individual liberty. But as you say, brought in overnight, not having seen the legislation before, we're supposed to live in a democracy. All of a sudden, our liberties are being taken away. We are being subjected to new rules that have never been debated in Parliament. Now, let's say if this legislation had gone through in the proper way, what would have happened is it would never have survived in its present form. It would have been amended so that children were excluded, as they are in Wales and in Scotland. But nevertheless, we would have at least had a debate. We would have had a democratic process. What outrages me is that these things are being done without actually any consultation with elected representatives. I never got to vote on it. I never debated it.
2: And and that, yeah, and that that is the, the big issue, isn't it? I mean, I, I think I think a lot of people, including me, were, were actually happy to accept a lot of the uh, the legislation early on in the pandemic when we, you know, we were in an emergency situation. People you know, got very panicked. Uh, and I, I, I think there are big question marks now about whether some of those decisions were the right ones. But I completely understand uh, the justification at the time now we 're told we we are facing a second wave, and we 've got this rising number of cases, over three thousand uh, positive coronavirus tests uh, it, 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 three days running um, and and that we are we, we need to act again act fast and there 's warnings from for instance a uh, 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 the Peter openshaw professor of experimental medicine at imperial he 's another one, and various other warnings that we 've had this weekend. But there's also an awful lot of counter-evidence. There's evidence about what happened in Sweden and showing that which their case level is now much, much lower. There's big question marks about whether or not there will be a second wave. Big question marks about whether uh, we've now got what's called a case-demic, where we're finding cases, but they, they're all, virtually all of them are positive, sorry, false positives, where actually it's, it's people with traces of the virus who are young people. They, they Not only are they not going to get ill, they can't even pass it on to anyone else because they, they, they these are traces of the virus from six months ago. So now there are an awful lot more people questioning what we call the science in capital T, capital S, is that clearly there isn't the science. There are different scientific viewpoints. And perhaps a lot of us would like more scientific viewpoints to be taken into
3: account. Last week, when the Secretary of State made his statement, I asked him if there was not a scintilla of doubt in his mind about this other scientific case that is being made. And his reply was that no, there wasn't any doubt. But my point comes back to the democratic one. I accept that I might be in a minority in my skepticism about the current science, but minorities consent to be governed by a majority in a democracy because at least their voice was heard and they had their say and their vote was counted. And what is so annoying about the situation now is that these things are not being debated in our free and democratic parliament. The government isn't making its case on why it's relying on a particular scientific establishment and excluding the other evidence. And I want to see that debate take place and at least know that, hey, well, if I lost the vote, that's democracy.
2: And and this is the worry, isn't it? That we were looking lots of these decisions early on. And there are people who've disagreed all the way along. They've either said we shouldn't have locked down, or, or like, as Sweden didn't do, or we should um, we should have locked down sooner or whatever. But but that the key thing is that we need to be hearing all the different evidence. And we know that the government still seems to be um, holding on to these Imperial College models, these computer models, um, which are which we're aiming to predict what could happen. We, remember, we all remember that 250,000, even half a million deaths if we don't lock down. And, and then it emerged that actually that was if there was no social distancing, no mask wearing, no nothing or, no at all. And more hand washing. When of course, we were already doing that a couple of weeks before we locked down. But also... We, it's the reliance on computer models when we've actually got case history, real life case history from not just from other countries, but from um, coronavirus pandemics in the past, so your SARS, your MERS and the like, um,
3: which, we can use, which we can rely on. Well, the, the Imperial College model was also applied to what was going to happen in Sweden on the basis of the policy that they'd adopted. Yeah and it got it completely wrong. And when it comes to real life cases, in July, five times more people died of flu in the United Kingdom, bear in mind it is not the flu season, five times more people died of flu than of COVID-19. Now I think we need a sense of proportion and we need to have the government actually justify the policies that it's pursuing.
2: Um, can I also ask you about um, a call from the NHS Chiefs in England uh, they're writing a letter to all GPS telling them to give face-to-face appointments for those who need them particularly elderly people uh, those with chronic problems or many different problems but it's very easy for me you know, I need to do I, I, I much prefer the fact that I can now just email my doctor and get a response very quickly here's you know here's your here's your prescription off you go I don't have to bother queuing up and waiting for an appointment but for many people with chronic issues um, they really do need that face-to-face time uh, and basically saying to GPS you know you're in breach of contract you need to start seeing your patients Millions of patients around the country not getting a a chance of having an appointment uh, face to face with their doctor. What do you make of that? Because it's a real concern that many, basically anything non-COVID
3: is not currently getting treated. Uh, uh, Well, even the government statistics are saying, are suggesting that 26,000 people have died because they didn't get the treatment that they would otherwise have had, had there not been this concentration on COVID and that a further 16,000 will die in the next few months. In addition, um, so I'm entirely with um, the government in demanding that GPs provide face to face um, appointments and encourage people who have a suspicion that they are unwell. And to be fair, the Secretary of State has been trying to do that, encourage them to come forward, not to sit on their symptoms. But uh, but I'm with you. Actually, I think medicine has probably changed um, for the long term in that for many of us it is more convenient to be able to email our doctor and say, here, you know, do I need to come in? And only if you need to come in, would you come in? And I think that will be better in the long run for those people who do need to see the doctor physically because there'll be more scope and more room for them to do so.
2: Can I also ask you just finally, before I let you go, uh, what you make of the, uh, the rouse over the internal markets bill. I mean, it's, it's, it's it sounds deathly dull, but it's become a big storm front page of the newspapers the last few days over this, uh, what, uh, Sir Geoffrey... I was I always give him a night. knighthood. Geoffrey Cox definitely just should have a knighthood, shouldn't he? Geoffrey Cox, the former Attorney General, has got an unconscionable, unconscionable damage to... Uh, to the, uh, the UK's reputation in the world uh, by us undermining international law by breaching the withdrawal agreement, do you agree that this is a big risk? Along with, uh, I mean, others, you know, John Major, um, Theresa May, um, Lord Howard, Tony Blair, all say this is a terrible, terrible thing to do.
3: It's utter tosh. The look at the European Union's um, record of abrogating international agreements and rulings particularly with the world trade organization international obligations that it's under and it's made that it's frankly ignored everyone watching will see what is going on we are taking a precaution against an explicit threat that has been made to us in the trade negotiations if you don't give way And let those trade negotiations proceed along the way that we, the EU, would want them to proceed. You know what we will do if it comes to the fact that there's no trade deal at the end of the day. We'll exclude your trade from Northern Ireland. We're taking a proportionate measure against the possibility of that threat. This bill doesn't break any international obligation at all. It's purely a precaution against those circumstances arising. And everyone else in the world will see what's going on. And to make these fatuous comparisons that, oh, how on earth can we do this and, and then criticise China for what it's doing in Hong Kong? <laughs> to make that, comp- that, that that kind of comparison shows the bankruptcy of your argument. Uh,
2: so Desmond Swain, I couldn't agree with that more, I have to say, thank you very much indeed.
1: Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed.
2: Peter Foster is public policy editor at The Financial Times and also author of their weekly Brexit briefing. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning to you. I have a horrible feeling you can't hear me because I can see you on video, and uh, and I know you're there, uh, Peter Foster. Can you hear me now?
0: Julia, we've you're got it. Lovely.
2: <laughs> oh, the, the vagaries of technology. I long for the days we get everyone back in the studio. Um, we've got. Uh, I mean, we had Theresa May. We've had Lord Howard, the former Tory leader. We've had Tony Blair, John Major, all criticising the Prime Minister. Uh, last night we had Geoffrey Cox, the former Attorney General, uh, talking about uh, this Internal Markets Bill. Uh, he said he won't. Vote for the bill in its current form," He's, uh, he said. "It risks undermining the standing and reputation of Britain in the world. An unconscionable damage is being risked to our reputation. A um, lot of very passionate words. Um, tell us why. Why is the internal markets bill such a threat to our reputation?
1: Because uh, you're essentially trying to negotiate with a gun on the table, Julia. I think that's the problem. You're saying. Give us the outcome we want on the Northern Ireland Protocol, and if you don't give it to us, then uh, we're going to take it on our own terms. We're just going to legislate to unilaterally uh, uh, rewrite an agreement that we'd agreed last year. And I think that's a really difficult position to negotiate. I hope uh, uh, that your guest is right and that this is the precursor to a deal. But I do think it now makes a deal much, much harder to get to.
2: And yet we know that there's been quite a lot of dragging of feet. I mean, we're on the eighth round of talks for goodness' sake, um, and, and uh, despite these sort of war of words, often in public and behind the scenes, and there's this these tweets exchanged between Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, and our chief negotiator, Lord David Frost, suggests that there is really no love lost at the current time. Um, that the the the, the 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 EU have just stuck fast; they will not change their view on the fishing rights, and they basically want us to continue with the same fishing rights for the EU as we've had. Where we were in the EU, which is I think is ridiculous. Um, also they will not move on the issue of state aid. Um, now these are these are these are points which we're not willing to to give in on. Um, then there isn't going to be any movement. But there is a requirement by the EU, same as there is on the UK, under withdrawal agreement and under the Lisbon Treaty, Article 50, in which we left the EU, for there to be good faith negotiation to find a new training arrangement. There are plenty of people arguing that actually uh, it is the EU that are in breach of international law for not negotiating in good faith.
1: I, I, I just think that's a stretch, honestly, Julia. When you talk about good faith, you know, that means you're putting... Uh, uh, uh you're both making your best efforts to get to a deal i'm not sure how you square um a unilateral effort a, a, a unilateral declaration to break international law to rewrite the treaty that boris johnson agreed listen lots of people might not like the northern ireland protocol they might not like northern ireland being left alone in the eu's customs rules etc and the border in the irish sea that it puts there but that is what boris johnson negotiated he did sign the it, yeah. Yeah. And, you know and, and i think i think that you know that, that there is a There is a problem here now about trust. I mean, I I do think it's a real problem. I do think on state aid, you know, the the EU, if you read the political declaration, were very clear that unless we gave them guarantees on how we were going to subsidise our industries and companies, they wouldn't give us a zero tariff, zero quota deal, Julia. But a deal without any tariffs is really key to making that border in the Irish Sea not too difficult because you know, and so the things are connected. And again, the British government put out its uh, plans on state aid yesterday, and they're pretty much nowhere close to what you would need, I think, to get a zero tariff deal. So on the one hand, they put out a state aid regime, you know, that essentially leaves them free to subsidise as they want, and it makes it very difficult to get a zero tariff deal. And then said, and if that makes bad news for Northern Ireland, we're just going to go off and do our own thing. And I, I, I do think, you know, that is going to make it tough to get a deal. But, but we do have the ridiculous
2: situation. I mean, there's Twitter exchange between Michel Barnier and David Frost. Um, it's all about, um, it, it, Michel Barnier said, look, you know, the EU's not refusing to list the UK as a third country for food imports. And this is basically, you know, having ha- having you know, that sort of trade uh, trading relationship. And, and David Frost pointed out for that the UK, having been in the EU for 40 years, adheres to all relevant food standards in the EU already. So there's no reason for us to be listed, say, as a third country. So they'd have to sort of verify every single item going in and out. He pointed out the EU lists dozens of countries globally on precise Precisely, this basis, without any sort of commitment about the future. If we did change any of our rules in the future, we would notify the World Trade Organization uh, in advance, and 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 that and that the EU deals this with the many other countries. Everything that we everything that that's gone on since uh, we left the EU has been predicated on the basis that the EU still wants to treat us as if we are some minor EU country and that they just hold the upper hand, as opposed to as a great trading nation, you know, the sixth biggest economy in the world, and a third party. This this urge to still treat us as if we are still just one of the 28 members of the EU, that that's the fundamental problem. They haven't got to grips with this at all, have they?
1: Listen, I mean, there's no doubt that, that there's, a, there's a huge gap here. I mean, I think what the EU would say, Julia, is that if you want a zero tariff, zero quota deal, and you want as friction-free movement as possible of goods going across the the Channel Tunnel. That's 10,000 trucks a day, either on ferries or in the tunnel. Sometimes 75 or 80% of the uh, imported fresh fruit and vegetables in our supermarkets come from the EU. If you want that, then you need to have a fairly deep agreement on uh, 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 plant and animal health, SPS as they call it, uh, before you end up talking about third country listings. No one's talking about blockades. And I think the EU, again, would feel... That this uh, uh, standoff over the food standards, if we want a facilitated deal, is now being used by the EU side as a sort of, you know, they're going to blockade food from Northern Ireland. I think that's pretty... You know, I do think that is pretty ridiculous. But hold on. I mean, is, anyway, is it not pretty ridiculous for
2: worldwide? the EU with their food standards? The fact that the UK is, I think, almost entirely, if not entirely, our food standards are higher than the EU requ- lowest requirement and higher than average. Uh, you know, the, the horse the horse meat in lasagna crisis didn't come didn't come from, from the UK, let's remember. It was another EU country that actually to say that, oh, we're worried about your food standards when our food standards are currently above EU food standards. That's a bit disingenuous as well, isn't it? I mean, look, we all we've got to stop pretending that the EU are negotiating in good faith on this. They're, they're, if if whatever criticism you can lobby at our at our government of being are being disingenuous, surely you can lob, lob the same at the other side. I mean, all fair, all all's fair in love and war, surely.
1: Uh, I guess I mean you know the truth is uh, uh, the EU is a kind of legal construct. So whilst our food might be the same on day one. We're also trying to get a trade deal with the United States that has very different food standards on pesticides, on chlorine washes, etc. So what the EU would say is that this is a legal contract between two partners. We can't do it on the basis of well, we're the same on day one, and and then let's see what happens afterwards, and we'll tell you. No, that no, that's no, but
2: that's exact. That's exactly as 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 uh, uh, Lord Frost has pointed out. That's exactly how they trade with everybody else. Those that is the normal form for doing trade in the world.
1: But Afghanistan has a third country oh, list of the EU, but it also has a it also has a, a declared SBS regime. I don't. There's not a problem with a third country listing, I think. But I think this idea that it's uh, same on state aid that we'll just have it left up in the air and we'll tell you when we're moving and all the rest of it. I mean, the EU, the UK can do what it wants, but if it wants a zero tariff, zero quota deal, Julia, that makes it easy to move all that produce back and forth over okay. the channel. It's going to have to come to some agreements. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. We're okay. just going to deal with Japan. I think do you know what.
2: Well, exactly. We have indeed. I mean, I have a funny feeling that we are going to do a deal with the EU. But and a lot of this is just a, a big smokescreen and behind the scenes, they are going to get on with it. Uh, Peter Foster, thank you so much as always for joining us from the Financial Times. He's the public policy
1: editor there.
0: breakfast with julia hardley brewer and the times know your times
2: first up though let's talk to the former supreme court justice lord jonathan sumption who joins us now good morning to you lord sumption
4: Good morning
2: um thank you very much indeed for joining us now you've been someone who' has spoken out from very early days during the the lockdown period about the issue of affecting our civil liberties in this country uh, with a lockdown we 've seen much uh, starker, stricter lockdowns much more strictly enforced in some other European countries with about perhaps our some of our sort of uh, sort of liberal backgrounds as we, we had um, but you are particularly unhappy now about the new rule came in at midnight twenty three minutes' notice from the actual legislation being published. Telling us that we can now, in England, only meet in groups of up to six, unless we're at work or at school or, weirdly, playing sport. Um, tell us what your concerns are, Lord Sumption.
4: Well, the the rule of six is not such an outrageous interference with civil liberties as the total lockdown, in uh, force between March and June, was. Uh, but it is objectionable because it's pointless, because it's arbitrary, and because it's unnecessary. Uh, it's pointless because without an army of snoopers and informers, uh, it can't be enforced. And it's arbitrary because we're still being allowed to mix with much larger numbers of people in the workplace, in public transport, schools, the streets, shops, and supermarkets. Uh, so that this seems to be a marginal measure at best, uh, but it's intrusive enough to wreck a lot of people's uh, basic interaction with other human beings. It's unnecessary. Because the recent surge in infections is being driven by younger people under 50 who, with a handful of infections, are not going to suffer more than minor symptoms or possibly none at all and have much less chance of dying of COVID-19 than they do of ordinary seasonal flu. And that's why, in spite of the upsurge of infections, the rate of hospitalizations and deaths has hardly moved uh, in this country uh, and has only very slightly moved uh, in other countries.
2: Well, we're we're told by the government and the prime minister himself said he will do whatever is necessary to stop the spread of the coronavirus. We're told by uh, Chris Whitty, Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief medical officer, and the chief scientific advisor that we are heading towards a second wave, and if we don't act now, we will see that second wave and many thousands more deaths. Now, you, you of course uh, are, are not like me, a a, a scientist or, or a doctor, but um there are many people now in the scientific and medical community questioning the likelihood of a second wave, questioning how big. A risk that is. Do you think that uh, a, a, an awful lot of the the evidence that it contradicts what the government is doing right now is being ignored to somehow justify these sort of infringements on our personal liberties?
4: I am not an epidemiologist, but then neither are the government ministers <laughs> who have to make these decisions. We all have to look uh, at the uh, expert advice and form a view that any citizen should feel Uh, at liberty to do that indeed i think it's a moral duty that we should make our own minds up on these questions Um, but the problem is there is going to be uh, an upsurge of infections whatever we do that is the lesson uh, of the whole of europe as well as of this country we have a lockdown is the most severe form of social distancing imaginable Uh, we have had lockdowns in this country for three months other countries have had even more severe lockdowns what has been the result everywhere the the virus is resurgent now these things make no difference unless they are held in place permanently uh, and totally in that case you can reduce the infections for as long as the measures remain in place, but you will have to put up with unimaginable social, educational and economic costs if you do that.
2: And that's These things aren't cost-free. Um, there's quite a lot of a buzzing sound. I don't know whether someone's drilling outside your window or not, but I'm hoping we can uh, resolve that sound issue. Um, we've had talk also these Covid marshals, local authorities hiring people, although no extra funding from central government for it, uh, for people to ensure, without any actual powers, but to ensure that we do socially distance. Um rather difficult to ensure people are following this rule of six in their own homes. I'm thinking if I'm sitting in, a, in my home and there happens to be a seventh person, I'm clearly in break, breach of the law of committing a criminal offence. But unless someone actually knocks on the door and verifies this and a police officer is brought along to fine me, um, how can it be enforced? Do you think the issue of enforcing the law... Is, is, is actually one of the problems, which is that actually people, people think that if a law isn't enforceable, it's not worth paying attention to.
4: Well, I think that many people will feel that it's worth paying attention to the law uh, because it makes sense. I don't believe that it makes sense, but that there are people who disagree. There are also people who, I would say, uh, would be well advised uh, to comply because they are particularly vulnerable on age or health grounds. But this is a decision which each of us should be in a position to make in the light of our own particular circumstances. Uh, We are not all the same, but the government's regulations treat us as if we were. We have different states of underlying health. We are of different ages. Some of us have had the disease already, others have not. Uh, This one-size-fits-all approach is deeply disruptive and unnecessary. It's much more efficient for everybody to make their own decision in a responsible way uh, in the light of their own conditions and the conditions of those around them,
2: um, and what about the possibility of a legal challenge? We have seen some legal challenges brought by businessman Simon Dolan and others uh, to the actual lockdown, which which didn't really sort of you know see the, the light of day. But in terms of someone say choosing to go ahead with a uh, an event where there are say two families getting together and there are seven or eight of them and getting a a, a one hundred pound fine, refusing to pay it, facing a criminal record. Is there any possibility of a legal challenge? Would you, have I spoke to, I happened to speak to some people last night who uh, would be very happy to help fund, possibly even crowdfund, but uh, help fund your, uh, you, you, if you wanted to uh, bring some sort of legal challenge on this. Do you think that's likely?
4: Um, I'm sure some people may try to do it. But there would basically be two questions in a legal challenge. One is whether the government has power to do this at all. Uh, if they don't have power, then it doesn't matter how necessary it is. And the other ground of challenge would be to say that it wasn't necessary and was therefore a disproportionate invasion of people's human rights. Um, I think that some of what the government has done, notably the lockdown, they did not have power to do, or they they could probably have done it under a different statute and in a different way. Uh, I think that other things, less intrusive invasions on civil liberties, uh, they probably do have power to do. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that the courts are going to decide Uh, whether it's necessary, because this is not only a a difficult technical and scientific question, but it has to be weighed against all sorts of other social considerations um, uh, unrelated to health, uh, the social damage, the collateral medical damage, the educational and economic damage and so on. And this is an exercise which courts are not well placed to carry out. And I suspect that the courts will recognise that
2: outside their jurisdiction. The civil liberties aspect to this is is very important and I suppose becoming more important as um, the, uh, the, the the threat of the virus, the pandemic has receded. Again, many people think that it is now resurgent. Again, there's an awful lot of medical and scientific evidence that that is not uh, the case in any meaningful sort of, you know, pandemic, global existential threat to the human race sort of way. Um, but uh, when a lot of people, I mean, and I include myself in this, were completely accepting of the need for a lockdown. There are some who always argued against it. I, I was of the view, well, you know, Chris Whitty knows a dance sight more than me. Uh, there's a big concern. It's a virus we don't know much about. We should probably play safe. Uh, but again, for a few weeks, while the NHS, you know, manages to get its act together and we 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 can you know build up uh, stocks of PPE, etc., etc. Um, now that it has receded, um, there is the concern that that the the infringements on our civil liberties are now out of even though this rule of six is far less than you have to stay in your home twenty three hours a day, um, that that these infringements are, are are as you say unnecessary and not not justified by the the perceived threat, and we've seen this before with any I- I infringement of our civil liberties. Um, in in this country, that it tends to be used by the authorities um, far past its initial its initial um, reason for for being brought into being. Are you concerned that some of the civil liberties we have lost during this pandemic period will be lost forever?
4: Well, uh, I think that what will what will survive the current crisis is a taste for coercion, because governments have learnt. Uh, well, our government has certainly learnt in the course of this crisis since March. that if you frighten people enough, they will, uh, in large numbers, submit to your wishes. And power is intoxicating. This is a government which is completely obsessed with coercive remedies, even when other remedies are available. Uh, I can only describe Mr. Hancock in particular, who has driven most of these measures through, as a gimlet-eyed fanatic. There are many considerations other than health considerations uh, which have to be taken into account, which are being ignored. And there are health considerations which are being ignored. In in this morning's papers, we find new uh, uh, reports suggesting that the scale on which the lockdown earlier this year uh, will have led to an increase in cancer deaths uh, uh, is really frightening. This is a one track mind approach. Uh, to the dealing to dealing with the pandemic. And the problem with one-track minds is that you miss all the things that are happening in the other six tracks that you can't see.
2: Lord Sumption, very much appreciate you taking the time to join us. His former Supreme Court justice has been raising his concerns about civil liberties throughout the lockdown period. So appreciate you joining us. Apologies for the quality of that line. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast show every weekday from 6:30 until 10.
0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.